So we begin reading in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." As I began looking into this service, I want to be kind of focused on Thanksgiving and go over some things that might help us. After finding the passage and studying God's Word, and after getting a good handle on what He's talking about and what the message is for us, I started kind of looking, doing a couple searches online, and I, I googled uh, the word gratefulness or things that we're grateful for, and, and I found different things. But some of the things that I found in there, I found fell a little bit short of making me feel grateful. One of the statements that I came across was, life is hard and then you die. It says, then they throw dirt in your face, then the worms eat you. Be grateful that it happens in that order. <laughs> I, I did not find myself inspired toward gratefulness at the end of that quote. Another one by Bernie uh, Siegel. He says, most of us never stop to consider our blessings. Rather, we spend the day only thinking about our problems But since you have to be alive to have problems, be grateful for the opportunity to have them. Again, I fell a little bit short of the inspiration toward gratitude that I thought that you might be getting. As we come to this passage in Hebrews, he comes to this point where he uses a phrase that he uses throughout the book in a couple different areas as well. But this little two words says, let us. Let us do this. Let us do this. And, and there's two times that he uses that phrase toward the end of our passage here. And one of them, it says in verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaking. And the second let us is let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And so he's saying we need to be grateful. Let us be grateful to God. And the word even before that, is the word therefore, which means it's based on something else. There's reason for us to be grateful. And that's what I want to look at here this morning. In this passage, the author is writing to these people and he's saying there's good reason for you to be grateful. And just as the message was to them, it's the same message to us. God's message to us is that we we ought to be grateful. Now, Gratefulness is not something that exists in and of itself. It's being grateful just for the purpose of being grateful or being grateful for the purpose of being happy. We're being grateful because we have good reason to be grateful. And that's what I want to look at to begin with. Why is he encouraging these people to be grateful? The reason that he gives us here is because of this, in verse 28, he says, because of this unshakable kingdom. This unshakable kingdom. 
Now, what exactly is he talking about? It can be a little confusing at first reading here. So we're going to have to go a little bit more in in depth on this. Now, the unshakable kingdom that he's talking about goes back into verse 18. Notice in verse 18, he tells these people, "For you have," he tells them they have not come to something, and then they have come to something. So notice verse 18 starts with the phrase, you have not come to. And then if we skip down to verse 22, it says, but you have come to. So he's making a comparison between two things. He says, you've not come to one mountain, you have come to another mountain. Now he doesn't, actually in the first parts of the passage, he doesn't actually list another mountain, but he is talking about one. He's talking about Mount Sinai. So when he says, you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He's talking about when God gave the commandments to Moses. And Moses, if you look back into Exodus chapter 19, Moses was to go up on the mountain to be with God. God was going to give Moses the commandments. But God said, because of my holiness, because of who I am, the people cannot come on the mountain. Put a border around the mountain. Don't let man nor beast come on the mountain because you cannot just approach a holy God. And so God says, Moses, you're going to come up and be with me, but put a border Warn the people, do not cross this line, or there is a price to pay. You die. And he's talking about when God spoke to the people, and the people actually got to hear the voice of God, and there was thunder, and there was a shaking of the mountain. The glory of God descended on them like a cloud. And so there's this darkness, and this shaking, and this loud thunder, and the voice of God, and it terrified the people. And the people said, tell God to talk to you. You tell us what God said, because we're, we're afraid we're going to die. We're going to die if He talks to us personally. And God actually honored that. He said these people are right to recognize that there's a distinction between them and a holy God. They were good in recognizing that holiness. But God is looking at that at this point, or the author of Hebrews, and He's writing to them and He says, this is not the mountain that you're coming to. As you come to Christ, when you're in Christ, you're not coming to the mountain of the Ten Commandments, to the Mount Sinai. You're not coming to that experience where if an animal even touched the mountain, he would have to be stoned. Um, You're not coming to that experience. And the way He describes that experience as things that can be touched... In other words, temporal things, physical things. And that's what if you look at the Old Covenant, that's what the Old Covenant is. Don't touch, don't taste, don't do this, don't do that. And, and they were, they were physical regulations and they were a physical priesthood that was offering up physical sacrifices and they were very temporal. They were temporal and that the sacrifices had to be offered every year, repeatedly, which shows you that they never worked. They were very temporary sacrifices. Uh, the priesthood, did not last because the priests kept dying. And so they had to have new priests that they appointed after the old priests from their sons. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, it shows these things and it shows the temporal nature of the priesthood that existed and then the superiority of Christ's priesthood, which goes on forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is kind of mysterious, and that Christ once and for all sacrifice was offered and His blood 
paid our debt, not in our earthly tabernacle or temple, but in the heavenly. And in chapters 8 and 9, he talked about how the earthly tabernacle was a, a shadow. It was a pattern. It was a, a, a figure, a picture of the real deal in heaven. And so the point that he's been making is that the, what we've had through the thousands of years of Israel's history, a couple thousand, 2,500, I think, years of Israel's history with those sacrifices, those were just an image of the real thing that was going to happen through the Son of God. And he's making that comparison. And so he says, look, you haven't, you haven't come to that mountain that could be shaken. You've come, to, you've come to something that can't be shaken. You haven't come to the picture or the shadow of the reality. You've come to the reality itself. And then notice the first comparison was the, the gloom and the darkness and the loud trumpet and the voice that scared the people. But notice in verse 22, we see the comparison is, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is usually a reference to, uh, can be a reference to one of the mountains that the temple was built on in J- Jerusalem. There's also a reference to a heavenly city, a heavenly dwelling. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That word perfect is used throughout the book of Hebrews too. And you know what it's used to convey? It says that the old covenant was not perfect. It had imperfect priests who offered temporary sacrifices. Because of that reason, it could never perfect the conscience of those that worship. But then in contrast to that, it uses the word perfect and says, but Christ has been made our perfect high priest who can perfect and who does perfect the conscience of the worshipers. And he uses the word here to say that this is what we receive in Christ. We are made perfect. That talks about what happens to us through our salvation and when we get to experience it completely in heaven. It says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That word better is also used throughout the book of Hebrews. In fact, through the book of Hebrews, I would summarize it this way. The Hebrews are second generation Christians. They, they weren't there for, to hear Christ Himself speak, but they learned it from the apostles, from those that heard it from Him. They were people that were going through some struggles, some persecutions, and they were Jewish people. And so for them, if they just forget about Jesus and go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, all their persecutions would go away. And so they're tempted to do that. But throughout the book of Hebrews, he comes to them and he says, you can't do that. And he uses two different tools. One tool that he uses is comparison. He compares Christ with just about everything in Jewish heritage. And he shows that Christ is so much superior to everything else that they hold dear. The other thing that he uses is warning passages. That look, if you can turn your back on Christ, it means you're showing as the... Israelites wandering in the wilderness under Moses that rebelled against Moses. He said, you're showing the same kind of heart as those people. They came out with Moses. They were delivered out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They were saved that way. But then they showed themselves to have a wicked heart of unbelief and rebelling against God and His laws. And they faced the judgment of God, the wrath of God. And he tells these people, look, if you can turn your back on Christ, if you can walk back to your old life after embracing Christ, 
then you know what? You're showing that same evil heart of unbelief. You're not a genuine believer. And all you have to look forward to is judgment. So he uses those two tools, warnings for one and comparison for the other. And let's just look at the comparisons a little bit. He uses words throughout the book of Hebrews like like the word better. Um, Sometimes he'll say more excellent or superior, but words that pretty much mean the same thing. Right off the bat in chapter 1, he begins comparing Christ to angels. And in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, "...having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." And so he spends some time comparing Christ to angels. And he's saying, look, Christ is, is superior. He's more excellent than they are. When you get to chapter 3, he compares him to Moses. Now remember, the Hebrew people, that's, that's who they looked to. In fact, a lot of the religious leaders, when Jesus was there, they would tell Jesus, we know that God spoke to Moses. As for you, we're not so sure. Well, when he compares Jesus to Moses in chapter 3, in verse 3, he says that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So he goes on to say that Moses is just part of God's house. He's within God's house as a servant, but Jesus is in God's house as the son and as the builder of God's house. Now, because of that, Christ is better. Christ is better than the high priesthood that they had. And for doing that, as you get up into chapter 7, it compares Christ's priesthood for us with Aaron's old priesthood for the Israelites. And he says, look, Christ's priesthood is really more in the order of Melchizedek's. Melchizedek's, this priesthood is, a, is an eternal priesthood. It's an ongoing priesthood. It's a more effective priesthood with a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins because it worked. It didn't have to be repeated. And so as he does that, he says in verse 7 of chapter 7 that, that, that this kind of priesthood was superior to the old kind. Now, because of that, in verse 19, it says, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And so we have a better hope in Jesus Christ. In verse 22 of chapter 7, it says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant that we have in Him. Um, An excellent example of this is is found in chapter 8 and verse 6. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And then up into chapter 9, it talks in in, uh, verse 23, it points out that it was better sacrifices, talking about the sacrifice of Christ, better sacrifice in the new covenant than it was in the old. In, In chapter 10, He's talking to the people about the persecutions that they've been going through. And it said that they joyfully accepted, they had joyfully accepted the the confiscation of their property. Why had they been able to handle that so joyfully was because they knew that in Christ they have a better possession. They have a better possession and a lasting one. And so they recognize that. And then he goes into chapter 11 and he gives the example of all the Old Testament uh, heroes of the faith. And as he looks through those heroes of the faith, he, he says, why were they able to do these things? Why was Abraham able to leave home and just follow God out into the wilderness, not seeing the place that he had for him? Why was Noah able to start building a boat because of a storm uh, that, that he had no idea? He had never seen anything like it coming. And Noah, without seeing that, in fact, it would be a hundred years before the flood would happen, Noah would be building that boat the whole time, faithful to his task, having never seen a storm like that, 
How was he able to, to continue to do that? Moses, he left the palace of Egypt. Rather than having the luxury of the palace, he chose rather to suffer with God's people. Why would he make that decision? And he tells us in the middle of that chapter that the reason that he made that decision is because they were looking for something better. Verse 16 says, But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. Later on in the same chapter, it will list a lot of people that suffered. It says in verse 35 of chapter 11, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Why did they do all this? For a better life. And obviously, those people were going to their death. So the better life that they were looking forward to, they knew was not in this life, but in the one to come. And that's exactly the point that he's making in chapter 12. Remember what he said. Why, do we, why should we be grateful? We should be grateful because we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken. These people, it's, it's, like, it's like when they would harvest grain. When they'd harvest grain, they'd have a, a platform up on like on a top of a hill, like a plateau, where the wind would hit it. And they would take all their grain up there and they'd put it all on this platform area and they would drag boards across it with, with animals and, and that kind of stuff and do to, to try to get the grain to, to break free from the, the husks that it's in. And then when they would do that, when it's all broken free, then you have all the, the, the grass from it or the husks that were around the grain and the grain all together. And so then what they'd do, they'd take a winnowing fork and they would take and they would throw that stuff up in the air into the wind. And that way the wind would catch all the light husks and just blow them off of the platform. And what would land back down on the ground would be the part that you'd keep, the part that you wanted, the heavier grain. And that's kind of the idea. You throw it up in the air. You're, you're causing kind of a shaking in the wind. And the wind blows away the husks. And what remains is just the part that's good, the part that you want. The author here, God, is telling them, you have a kingdom that lasts. You have a kingdom that, can, that cannot be shaken. He looked back at that time when he gave Moses the commandments. And it says that God shook the mountain. Everything was tangible. Everything was physical. God shook the mountain. And then God gave another promise. When you get to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, God promised, someday I'm going to shake not only the mountains, not only the earth, but I'm going to shake the heavens as well. And what is he talking about? He's looking forward into the future when the Bible tells us that our old earth and the heavens are going to be shaken, they're going to be destroyed, and a new heavens and a new earth, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, why is that so important? Why should that instead? incite gratitude in us. Remember, we look back into chapter 10. We find that these people are going through suffering. Now, chapter 12, he tells them you've not yet resisted unto blood. So they haven't paid with their life yet. But, he says you've not yet resisted unto blood. That was coming. But he said you have endured some things. You've endured, if you look in chapters 10, verse 32 through 34, he says you've endured public humiliation. You've endured the confiscation of your property. You've endured imprisonment and afflictions. These people's world was being shaken. Their, their homes were being stripped from them. Their freedoms were being stripped from them. Their, their dignity, they felt like, was being stripped from them. As they're being publicly humiliated, their world is being shaken. But God is pointing out to them that, look, you may be experiencing some shaking in your world right now, but your world right now is very temporary. This is a world where you can be shaken. You've got a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
He's saying, look, you might be losing everything. It might feel like you're losing everything in this world right now, but you have everything in the kingdom to come. You have everything in Jesus Christ. You cannot be shaken in that kingdom. And you know what? The same is true with us. Our finances can be shaken. Our health can be shaken. Our relationships can be shaken. Our, our lives in this world can be shaken. Our difference is we're not left with the only thing to be grateful for is that they, the worms don't eat you until after you're already in the grave. Our difference is we have a whole lot more to be grateful for than just the fact that we're still alive. In fact, he's writing to people that may very well end up paying with their life. And he's saying, even at that point, if they take and shake everything out of you that they can in this lifetime, you know what? You still have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know, I I put myself in these people's place and it's, it's hard for me to do because my life has been very easy. Not that there hasn't been some trouble, some conflicts along the way, but I think when you put it on the grand scheme of thing, I've had it pretty soft. Now, I look at these people that are having their homes stripped from them, uh, suffering, watching their kids get go through the same kind of suffering. That's always the worst as a parent. And all the things that they're, that they're going through. And these people are tempted to go back their old life. They're tempted to get away from Christ, distance themselves from Christ, because it's because of Him that we're suffering. And I think, if you do that, you're turning your back on the one thing that can't be shaken. Everything else in your life is subject to shaking. Wall Street could collapse again. We might find ourselves like they did in the 1920s with people jumping from buildings because their world was so shaken. Our relationships can, can disintegrate. Our health is frail. It can fall apart. We can find ourselves at any time getting a diagnosis that uh, we have a very short amount of time to live. We're frail. Everything that we experience that can be touched in our world can be shaken. But we always, that's the thing about Christianity, we always have this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And even if it causes the shaking of everything else in our life that's temporal, we are still so much better off hanging on to that one thing that cannot be shaken. You think the little blip on a map that our life is on this time period here, if you strip everything out of it but give us something else, give us Christ for eternity... We got everything. What do we have to be grateful for? Well, we got a ton to be grateful for. But you know what? Even at those moments when it feels like our life is unraveling, we've got an eternity of grateful things to be grateful for. I read one other thankful thing that was by, I think this one was Mike Rowe. He said, I'm looking forward to the future and feeling grateful about the past. And the reason that I put that up is this is an interesting passage on this idea of gratefulness. Because the gratefulness that is being expressed in the passage is really not so much looking at the past. It's looking at the future. Most of the definitions, I looked up several definitions of the word gratefulness, and almost all of them were connected to the past. That gratefulness was a feeling of indebtedness because of a past kindness that you'd experience from somebody. But this passage is it's dealing with our need to be grateful is not dealing with our past. Is dealing with our future. Now, he could have dealt with our past. He could have said, look at all that Jesus did for you as he died on the cross. And he has done some of that through the book of Hebrews. And the Bible often tells us to look back with gratefulness at the things God has done for us. But in this passage, is very different. In this passage, it's a look forward. And he's saying, you know what? we got a lot to be grateful for. And you know, it's, it's not things that we've already got. It's things that we're looking forward to enjoying. We possess them now, but we're going to mainly enjoy them later. So this gratefulness is looking forward into the future. Well, not only do we have the reason of our unshakable kingdom 
to be grateful for, but we also have the reason of the nature of God. At the end of the passage, he says, with this little statement, that we need to be worshiping him in reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Even the description that it gave at the beginning of Mount Sinai with the the shakable mountain and the thunder and the loud trumpet and all those things that brought fear to people's hearts, he's connecting this back to that, I believe. And he's saying, look at the awesomeness of God. The people, the Israelites, when God spoke to them, they said, oh, don't let God speak to us personally. We We can't speak to God and live. God warned them, don't come onto the mountain. You can't approach me like that and live. We, I think, miss that sometimes. We lose that because we know that we have complete access to approach Christ. In fact, earlier in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 5, it says, because of Christ, what He's done for us as our high priest, we can come boldly before God. We, we don't even hardly think about the fact that, uh, the idea of not being able to approach God. He says we can come boldly before God in prayer and we're accepted in Christ because of His priesthood for us. Israel never had that. They would get these temporary acceptances based on the sacrifices that they would come and offer in faith, but they were constantly reminded that you're shut out. The curtain over the holy places was constantly closed. It wasn't until on the cross of Jesus Christ that He laid down His life that that curtain door was ripped wide open and that signifying that access to God is now available. You know, we need to recognize that access to God is completely available, not on our own merits, but through Christ. But He's still that amazingly unapproachable God. Now, that sounds a little confusing. I mean that he is so far removed, he's so holy, he's so he's so set above that he's still that amazing individual that in and of our own ability we could not approach him. It is only through Christ that we can approach him and that we have this wonderful access to God, but he's still he's still that awesome God that's a consuming fire. We have reason for gratitude because we got an awesome God and because we got an unshakable kingdom that he's provided for us. But we also see that there is an expression of that gratefulness is found in a similar statement. Remember, we started by looking at two statements, words let us in them. The first one was let us be grateful. The second one is let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It is a parallel statement with the first. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, about on equal ground as far as we need to be grateful and we need to worship. But I think that worship is also an expression of our gratefulness. And if we look at this passage, I like this uh, quote that I got from success.com. It says, feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping a present and not giving it. Well, I think that that's what happens when the relationship between gratitude and worship. Gratitude is, is what you feel in your heart toward God. It's the, but then worship is the expression of that. And it says we need to worship God acceptably, which I think involves two things in this passage. Worshiping God acceptably, first of all, is pointing to through Jesus Christ. That's the whole point he's been making in the whole book of Hebrews. To worship God acceptably, you cannot, it's not, shall I worship God through Jesus or shall I go back to the temple sacrifices? He says, you don't get it. There are no more sacrifices. It's only Jesus. Those were the shadow. This is the reality. You can't turn your back on this. So worshiping God acceptably means coming to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, as our high priest. But then, notice he also conveys a couple words that dealing with attitude. That we need to worship God acceptably, and to do that means that we have the right attitude, which is reverence and awe. Reverence and awe, and then notice the word for right after that, for our God is a consuming fire. 
In other words, the point is that we come before God with the attitude that His presence ignites, what His presence deserves. When we recognize who our God is, that He's this amazing God, this consuming fire, how can we come to Him any other way? So the expression of our gratitude, our gratitude for His kingdom that He's provided for us, our gratitude for His nature and who He is as a consuming fire, is expressed through acceptable worship that comes to Him through the blood of His Son and recognizing that we are before a holy God.